welcome to another episode of Three Wise DMs, the podcast where three dungeon masters who've been doing this for way too long talk about all the things we try to do to make our games as good as they can be. I'm Thorne, and I'm joined by... Tony. Everywhere I hear the sound of marching, charging feet, boy. Cause summer's here and the time is right for fighting in the street, boy. <laughs> fighting in the street, fighting in the tavern, fighting in the dungeon, fighting wherever you are. That is a great segue, Dave, to the topic this week. D&D Combat. How do you run it? How do you make it not boring? And you know, I didn't recognize the song. What was the song? The Stones, Street Fighting Man. Street Fighting Man from the Stones. Yeah. It was so, uh, Jagger's, uh, it was actually a protest Vietnam song, surprisingly, from the Stones. Didn't ever think they really did any of those. But there you go. I really thought everything the Stones did was about basically keeping your girlfriend under under your thumb. Oh, well, that was that was one or two songs. Yeah. Mostly about toxic relationships. That's why I know the Stones. It was several of those. Yeah. <laughs> I... Wow, that's interesting trivia. I'd never heard that, but okay, let's scroll with that. Now you listen to the Stones. You start if you actually listen to the words of a lot of Stones songs, you're like, oh yeah, this is this sounds great. This this is not a this is not a positive message. This this, 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 this no, that's that's these are not nice people. <laughs> Who am I listening to? We are deep in a digression. So coming back to D and D combat, you know, you don't usually get digressions from D and D combat and well RPG combat in general, not just D and D. You know, it's. As I say that, it makes me stop and think, though, can this be about any RPG combat or is running D&D combat and running like the combat something like Call of Cthulhu or Marvel, are they fundamentally the same or different? I would say that they are in the sense that you have to have two things going on. One, it's got to be tight. You have to be clear on whose turn it is. If it's not, it immediately dissolves into all sorts of problems you don't feel like dealing with. And two, no matter what system you're playing in, if it's called Cthulhu, it's Marvel, it's Capes and Crooks, whatever, your 5E, 4E, know your NPCs and monsters and their abilities. Mm. Nothing lags a combat like, oh shit, I'm rifling through a stack of six pages. Does this guy have an aura or does he have a phase shift that takes place <laughs> on a die roll of a five or a six when you hit a critical? Uh, I don't remember. Nobody wants to deal with that. Yeah, I think it's a yes for both, to tell you the truth. Now, Tony and I have not run Cthulhu Combat. We've only played it. So no, I can only I, tell from and the... And I haven't run Marvel Combat. I've only played right. that. Only from the players, player side of things. I would say they are the same, but they are fundamentally different in the sense of the speed in which the combats usually resolve. So in Cthulhu and in Marvel both, uh, and I think it's because you're dealing out so much massive damage uh, mm. most of the time... Uh, with like a gunshot wound or in marble with a an unearthly punch or something, you're dealing such massive damage that you have two rounds, three rounds really tops for most um, for most villains. Uh, so I think they run quicker, which helps in some ways. And as a slight segue, that's actually one of the reasons with the Marvel game that I'm going to run, I'm actually going to experiment with something to see if it works in terms of running the table with combat to see if I can speed it enough so that uh, we don't bog down with something that I have in mind. So stay tuned. <laughs> oh, can't wait to see it. Something to make that character for, the, for, for, yeah. that, for that which, game. Which to finish out the point too is just with D&D &D or, or 
role-playing games like D&D, that's where you find these big slogging combats that are, you know, you got to you got to book 30 minutes for each combat. Like, that's just how it is, no matter kind of what's happening. And I guess, you know, Tony and Dave and Tony both, but, you know, Tony had mentioned it, that they are kind of the same. And you don't want to, you know, one of the big things is know your villains. You know, and I got to say, that is... I. I can see that applying to any of these. And I just ran into it. You know, we ran Call of Cthulhu last night. Um, and in Call of Cthulhu, I had a monster possessing a corpse, which was supposed to use the stat block of the zombie. That monster and that zombie are in different parts of the rule book. So, like, I kept having to flip back and forth and realize exactly how these things work. Uh, <laughs> and that, that was not helpful at all. I'm only using, like, one ability from the monster. And, I'm, and, and really just referencing the zombie to see is it getting knocked down or knocked out. But that was like, you know, I, it, that was a case of me not necessarily having that all put together like I wanted to uh, when I went into the combat. Hopefully it didn't slow it down too much. I tried to keep it fast. Actually, I think that ran pretty smoothly uh, from the player side of that. But I feel like combat Ooh, is an unwritten God. contract. <laughs> it did. There's like an unwritten contract there that the players expect some degree of description in the battle so they feel like they're actually in it but it just can't drag. So to help with that, you really have to watch how many creatures are on the table because that all affects your initiative order. Well, yeah, and I wanted to get to that a little bit later as far as how do you run combats with a lot of with a lot of monsters. We have some different playing. Some of the players at our tables expect and enjoy different things. I think we should get to that a little bit later because we do have in the Woodstock Wanderers all throughout battles with, with a lot of monsters, in part because some of the players like that no, no, Tony, you've mentioned you're not a big fan of it. Like, for you, that kind of drags when there's a lot of NPCs, right? It can, because the question is, okay, is there a table and there's a lot of monsters and there's a lot going on? But is it like, I don't know, an eight-minute combat? Is it a 12-minute combat? Mm. Is it an hour and 45-minute combat? Because that's where I think we hit problems. Are there any eight-minute combats in D&D? Absolutely. <laughs> I've had I've had like 60 seconds combat. There can, but that's when you throw out like a fucking giant constrictor snake falls on you and you slice it to death with one hit. Like that's for you know if you're rolling in initiative and the whole team is going, uh, it's longer than eight minutes. (laughs) Let's let's put a pin in that because I want to come back to that later and really get into how those combats work. But first to start out, I wanted to start out with just a little bit more of a top level question of yeah. So what do you feel like makes a combat encounter good? Versus what do you feel like makes a combat encounter boring? If the combat is going on for an excessive period of time, it is difficult to take the tension. In the article, one of the ones I'm putting together now, I I like having, I talk about where like there's comedy, there's drama, and there's action. It's got to kind of be broken up because maintaining the tension on a combat for two and a half hours is extraordinarily difficult. So I I don't advise it. If it's if it's like a final boss battle, if it's a pivotal moment, if this is the climax you've been building up to for 10 games, knock yourself out. Thursday, maybe not. So you feel like you said so. So really, for you, it's like you don't like the kind of role playing session where it's like, here's one or two combats for the entire night. Absolutely not. Mm. I mean, well, it depends. Again, you have to look, did we move the football in that game? Did that really Mm. move the story arc? And we're like, yeah, all right, we've defeated the evil Duke. And now the kingdom's free. And, you know, now we can finally have that meeting with the king and move things along and go across the sea. Then that's great. But if, again, if this is two ordinary combats, that's rough. Yeah. And I kind of, you know, like, I guess 
saying what makes it good or a boring combat, it really does come down. To, there's there's a context side to that question, right? Yes. Yes. Is there is it worth a long combat? Is this a big showdown or is this just some bandits wandered in front of the party in the woods and it's taking two hours? No, I think it's very much this is one of them ones that it's hard to say, oh, well, it's this way or that way, because it is very much the context of what is happening at that table, at that game with that session and what happened to in the session previous and is and is about to happen. Because, for instance, in the last Woodstock Wanderers game we had. So we've had several sessions now where we've done some much heavier role play, uh, which is definitely not what we have done the most of in the past. But we got now into a pretty hefty encounter this past time with the vampires kind of coming in in the mists, hiding in the mists and such and using that as their cover, coming into the town square when we were with Duke Craswell's at the keep uh, and we had to kind of drop in. And I think across the board, uh, my read of that um, was that everyone was super into it because there was multiple fail states. There were multiple points of of attack. There were multiple things happening, multiple enemies. And we were able to use abilities beyond just I cast sword or I shoot my (laughs) my fireball. Um, So I think that's a big part of it, too. You can have those slugfests, but like Tony was saying, it can't just be I hit you, you hit me. I hit it can't just be the rocky, you know, final final fight, you know. So I guess it sounds like what we're talking about when we ask what makes a boring combat versus what makes a good combat is there's another access there, which is what is this combat? Mm. Is this a random encounter? Is this a showdown? Like, is this something we want to take time with? Does the party want to take time with it versus do or is this just the DM kind of like, you know, just 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 filling time or just make, basically making the party grind through an encounter? And I, I would actually probably add there one other state, which is when the party sees something and they decide to stop and plan and approach it. That also feels like an OK time to go longer. What do you think, guys? I like kind of sound like kind of like the scale, the, the, the continuum we're dealing with here. I think that sounds about right. I mean, if you run into an encounter with bandits, like Dave said, and that battle takes two hours, then it let, well, then, something went horribly wrong. Well, yeah. So then my question is, if that encounter that unless you're like level one or two, isn't a speed bump moment. And I do believe in speed bump moments. If your characters are level nine, there are some times you should have an encounter where you just destroy the guys because you know what? You're that tough. You've earned it. But that's like the warm up to the exercise. Now, if it but the battle goes in for two hours with the, with the bandits, then the boss fight, what's that going to be? Four and a half the whole night. Right. That's, and if that's, it's not, and if it's not, is the, if it's not then twice as long, does the boss feel appropriately scaled? Right. Because if, if they're equal, it doesn't feel like the boss is special. And my final thought on that is I would avoid we're talking about avoid, trying to prevent a boring combat personally on the player side of things. If I have a combat where someone shoots a, an opponent for 34 points of damage with an arrow, and that's all the description we get. That's dry. I try really hard to 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 make sure I am adding descriptions in combat. That's actually I totally agree with that. Like if it's just I rolled this, that's the damage done, and there's no there's no flavor. It it does feel like that's like well we're just kind of running a video game here. Except the video game has cool images on screen, and we don't have that. Yeah, and fast, fast moving combat actions. Uh, just as a caveat to Tony's point, because it is a, it, it's an excellent point, and that is exactly what we're going to be talking about. Is that you know that random or random encounter that goes horribly awry, and you've rolled out initiative, and everyone's rolling like shit, and you just can't. It's it's an hour and a half later, <clears throat> um, <laughs> and you've literally got nothing because that was the first hour of the night, right? Yeah. 
DM but, can't always control it. Sometimes, sometimes the players just roll like shit. Right. That's just what's happening. Mostly in Call of Cthulhu, but I digress. <laughs> but um, <laughs> my, my main point That's with true. that is I think with a lot of what we're going to talk about here, there are dials and levers that you can play with, but you have to be playing with them while actively reading your table because I will always go back to the encounter I had with my Pathfinder group where they fought a mimic for almost two hours. And I would not put that as one of the slog fests or something went horribly wrong. It was a very memorable encounter because of the comedy involved in their complete ineptitude, right? So yeah. you have to, these, these dials and levers are important, but you have, to, you have to play with them actively at the table and use your best judgment, like Thorne said, in context. So with that in mind, then, how do you build and prep your encounters? I mean, assuming, you know, I, I don't think most of us, I mean, I know I'm running truly random encounters, not necessarily random, but truly off the cuff encounters, but you guys are both planning your encounters more. So what do you do to plan it, to prep it, to try to make sure it's going to be exciting? Well, I kind of look at it and say, is this balanced for what I'm looking for? Is this a speed bump encounter? Is this a more storyline based encounter are those mercenaries who've been hunting you have they finally caught up with you and this is going to be a pitched battle so this should there should be tension there should be more to it there should be higher stakes or is this the boss battle i had uh, at the end of my one campaign that i ran in second edition that thorn was part of mm. i would say the 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 final battle with seth the master vampire probably lasted around two hours but I gave him multiple forms. You know, there was dialogue in the beginning. Like you both had your say, you went back and forth and then you had at it. Epic battle. And then the finale. I mean, we've, we've said many times, and you know, what are the, what are the kind of the, the touch points you use for what feels like a good battle. And I've referenced Dragon Ball Z a lot where you were talking, you know, <laughs> the boss battle, maybe 23 episodes. I'm pretty sure there is a season of Dragon Ball Z that was literally just one boss fight. So I think for the boss battle, you can go a little longer, although for, for most role playing games, I want to split them across sessions, but you can go deeper like that, certainly. And it's, it's, you've earned that. Right. You spent the whole adventure building up that tension, building up a desire for them to have the showdown. So you've earned a long battle and the party, the party's earned a long, like a, a really needy, satisfying battle with that guy, too. And I think they are um, they're expecting that, too, yeah, as we've talked about in previous episodes. The battle with Frieza, when he got to his fourth form, went on literally for minimally 12 to 15 episodes. And though that's a funny <laughs> benchmark to keep looking back because the planet was going to blow up in air quotes five minutes. Like, <laughs> that's can't, that's can't. literally, that's like two thirds of our Curse of Strahd campaign so far is we're in 21 sessions coming into the next one. Could you imagine one fucking battle is <laughs> leading up to just now? Between two, uh, between two characters. And that is literally, I think, the longest five minutes in television history. It was five minutes that lasted something like, you know, like five minutes less something like 10 hours of airtime. It's the longest, the longest five minutes in television. That is longer than five minutes of overtime playoff football. <laughs> and, I, and I'm not saying that didn't work. I'm just saying let's never do that again. <laughs> yeah, that was that, that was that was the edge. That's, as, that's the most anyone should ever push that in anything. I, I got to agree with that. So, okay, I so um, I would definitely say that we should we definitely, you know, head back to our previous episodes, too, about the kind of our Tao of encounter building. 
uh, yeah. where we delve a little more into some of the <clears throat> the balance of building those. But I think we're we're looking at a much more high level when we're when we're putting this together as to how we're going to run the combat. And for me, most of what I'm trying to do, whether it's random plandom or or full on planned encounters, is I'm telling or I'm teaching something. I'm either using it to describe the world and set scene and set tone, or I'm teaching the, the players about something about the world. There's a reason that this encounter is here, even if it's seemingly this weird random thing, like when you guys ran into the Nothics in the Amber Temple, for instance. I mean, I used the, the encounters that they had built, but that was something where the Amber Temple is supposed to teach you that this is some great evil in the land. It's housing some great evil, possibly much larger than Strahd. So you want to feel like it's this complete death trap, which I, I hope it kind of came through as, and I, I feel like it did. This is sort of, I mean, to, to some of the characters involved, I think great evil maybe got overwhelmed by great opportunity. <laughs> what that's a disaster just, that was. Oh, that's, 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 you know, that's, is, isn't that Barovia, though, right? Isn't that sunny Barovia, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's like right in the fucking travel brochure, like page one, like, you know, come and make a deal in sunny Barovia. Some, come make a deal at the Amber Temple. <laughs> our, exper our experienced That's, magic merchants are here to make your dreams come through. Come yeah. through. <laughs> our dark elders. And, as Obi-Wan Kenobi once said, you were supposed to destroy the Sith, not join them. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, fuck that. We're the NWO now. Well, you know, I think the thing is, uh, Phineas, the warlock, I mean, he got his gifts and he, he didn't get any evil with the gifts. He got some weird things. Like, he can only whisper now. Yeah, and you have a weird, like, your smile is strange and stuff. But you were very, like, you were really trying to piece through because you saw that there are, some, there are some physical things that could happen. But yeah. there's multiple fail states with the, with the dark gift mechanic that only two of the players really kind of failed out completely from. So and we're, we're working on those. Yeah. So, okay, as far as combat goes, prepping for combat, I, mean, I would say, you know, as far as my encounter building goes, you know, I've talked about it before, and like Dave said, we have some other episodes about it you can definitely go check out. We, we have the one of our towel of encounter building. But I do try to, you know, I'll have in mind, when I'm running D&D &D especially, I tend to be running it off the cuff and a little bit, like, not random, but a little bit... Um, I'm ad-libbing. I'm improv DMing most of the time. But I come into the game with my list of monsters in mind that I want to play with. What are the things that are here? What do I want to use? What fits the level of the party? And I usually throw them out uh, with you know when, when we come into encounters in a way that makes sense off the cuff in the moment. In terms of prep, what I do is I will have those monsters kind of listed, ready. I'll have the monster manual next to me or the monster manuals now. You have a monster manual. I forget the other one off the top of my head. I've and said I'll, it before. Thorin literally will hold. I've seen him when he plays live. He'll have four books <laughs> just straight up against his stomach, and he's flipping them like an old Rolodex. It's quite amazing <laughs> to watch. And that's, uh, man, I don't, I don't know, does that sound amazing or uh, grognard? No, it's, it's, <laughs> it's awesome. I learned that. I completely took that on myself, too. What I'm doing there is I'm trying to make sure I have access to the things I'm going to have in combat. There is sometimes a little bit of a skip into combat because I'm like, all right, guys, let me grab my stuff. I might, I might give everyone a chance to take a break sometimes then. Other times, I'll, while, other times while the party was coming in, I already had in my head they're going to get ambushed here or this is going to happen here, so I'll already have it ready. But that's just, you know, for me, it's a matter of I make sure I have my monsters handy. If we're doing minis, you know, usually you know, we have players who take a minute to put minis out or I'll grab minis and throw them on the table. I describe the, the scene, so in Woodstock 1, 
Wanderers, at least, we have a player who puts the map down as I describe it. He has he has uh, module terrain pieces he throws out on the table. So it's kind of like that's kind of how we how I prep for those combats and then kind of how they get into motion. So we go into a combat. There's a quick setup usually uh, as you just kind of put pieces on the table or pieces on the virtual tabletop before in roll 20. I've got the monsters ready, I get the pages ready, and I'm literally flipping back and forth between the pages, which is why my monster manual is falling apart. <laughs> Watsy uh, build quality there. Right? Gotta tell you, I got, I got some I got some questions about Watsy's uh, you know, book binding uh, abilities. <laughs> I, need, I need a more heavy duty monster manual. So that's but that's kind of how I prep going in. And then, you know, we kind of I'll I'll show them the monsters they can see in the beginning. The party, I let the party set up however they want to set up if they can. Or I'll have them in marching order on the table with their minis. So I can, like, if they're in marching order and they're ambushed, they're attacked in that order. Other times, I usually let the party set up how they want to set up. And then we kind of get into the combat. And from there, I've got everything at my fingertips. I need to run the combat. So when we get into it, you know, at that point, we roll initiative. And when we get into it, I've got everything. Um, That's kind of how I prep for combat as far as, like, the – and really thinking about kind of, like, the, okay, how am I actually running it physically at the table? What are you guys doing? Well, I think you touched on something that's super important, which is – the placement of where everybody is on the table because as a dm you know what grinds my gears when i say okay you moved up and this guy attacks you i wasn't there i was like 75 yards back behind a pillar (laughs) hiding behind a potted plant until treasure's there right yeah, until treasure's there, and next thing you know, like the box is there, and before the thief finishes picking the lock, their hands are up to their elbows in that box. But <laughs> so I, I come back to what I originally said: you have to establish turn order very cleanly and placement of your characters. I'm not so necessarily so big on the map and the tokens and all that stuff, but mm. we have to know who's up front, who's in the middle, and who's on the back to make this possible, so they can't go on a tirade about where they were. Yeah, I think it's important, even when you're doing theater of the mind, which, you know, it's funny because I've been doing Roll20 for the past year. So I do some theater of the mind in Roll20, but it kind of slips my mind, you know, because we do more map stuff in Roll20. But even theater of the mind, I think you want to start with, okay, where is everyone? Either if it's going to be an ambush encounter, what you do is you ask people that before the encounter comes up. So, okay, what's your marching order? How are you entering these rooms? How are you going through? And you you write down in your DM notes, where is everybody? So when the encounter pops, no one can say, hey, I'm not in that. I'm in the other room. Or if they are following far behind, okay, you know that. And, you know, maybe that's when they get whacked by a, you know, by by someone sneaking up behind them. Because you can be so far back that you're not protected by the rest of the party members, right? But you want to get that going into the combat. You don't want to, you don't want to kind of, unless you're letting the party attack, which which sometimes you want to do, you want to establish, you you, want to establish where the party was when the monsters found them. Or if the party's attacking, you want to establish how are they attacking, where are they then? And like, note that. Because you're going to need that. You know, if you don't know where they are, yeah, like Tony said, it can get shenanigans. You can have you can have some real shenanigans going on if you don't set down where are the where are the players in this. Yeah, all good points with that, especially when you're like playing encounter and you're in it and it's about to, to be set off for whatever reason. For me, like when I'm coming into the session, I'm doing it just as part of my overall session prep, which is back to that idea of planning for the session. So... Wherever the party is, I know within a within a, a game session where they can get to and then what encounters I need to have set up for. So I know what is where 
So I know whether it's in, let's say they're in the Amber Temple. I know what's in all the rooms. So I can quickly, as they're starting to work their way through and talk amongst themselves, I can flip to the book and open up for the guests or for, you know, Arcanaloth or whatever it needs to be. And I know what's coming up. If it's something larger, like when you guys were fighting, for instance, the Mummy Lord that I put in there. Uh, that I have done a little bit extra prep for because uh, I think there's a big difference when you're planning your encounters and your combat between spellcasters and melee. Yes. Um, and yes. that is a big, big, big step. And don't lose it when you're in the middle of it. Do a little bit of prep beforehand. It's not excessive. But what I what I do is I will literally write out how many spell slots they have of each level and I will plan the spells that I want to use for that encounter. And that's what they're going to use so I don't have to go flipping through. I might even make notes as to it's this this save or it's this much damage so I can just roll right off my sheet without having to constantly go back to the book and flip to the PHB and then go back to the monster manual and yada, yada, yada. So, and I read condition immunities like a fucking hawk now. So that now, I don't lose another night. Well played. <laughs> now, yeah, <laughs> we, we've made that mistake. So, so learn from our mistakes, because I've also made some condition immunity. Not, nothing quite so spectacular as the night hag being sent away by a suggestion. But I have also made some condition immunity oversights where I'm like, oh, shit, they shouldn't have been able to do that. Oh, well, that oh, vampire well. is already dead. Um, right. Yeah. And I gotta re- I gotta uh, I'm just gonna reinforce what they've said about spellcasters. And part of this is maybe that none of us has actually played a high level spellcaster yet. In yeah, none of us has played a spellcaster above about level eleven. So none of us has gotten that deep into all the spells. And there's so many spells in the in in, in the book, and so many ways you can get them, and different classes yeah. get them that you don't know them all. So whenever you're dealing with an especially and also. Monster spellcasters tend to have spells that the players either didn't have access to or you wouldn't have come across. You just didn't look at. So you kind of need to know what are the spells. You need to do a little bit of homework on that because I have run into combats where I had a spellcaster. I'm like, all right, I'll put the spellcaster in and we get halfway through the combat and I start casting spells. I'm like, oh, I don't know what any of these spells do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> arm looks good. Oh, he's got to get close and touch the guy for harm. And he's in the back. All right. So uh, so he moves up. I bite touch- sounds good. I bite. Oh, I bite. Yeah, that's pretty Pretty wicked. Finger of death sounds great. Boom, you failed your save. Okay, awesome. Here's what. Yeah, how many hit points did you have? Forty-five. Oh, you're a um, you're a you're you're a skeleton now. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Sorry, Bob. <laughs> hey. You're yeah, working so for the bad guy now. No revivifies. A little prep work goes a long way. So. It really does. And that's only really going to come in play when you're going into a larger. Uh, more important battle. You're not just going to have your random fucking archmage, you know, waylay them on the roadside. I, I hope. I mean, I don't know well, what you're doing in your games, but that's funny because I'll I tell you that. What, what are you talking about? Yeah, right. Oh, oh, you, you, the, the archmage, the the, the the legendary archmage bandit king. What's up, fuckers? The cracking. Oh, the, the archmage bandit king. <laughs> He's a fucking Jesus Christ. Time to pay the taxes. He's like Robin Hood with an army of undead. I, 
Yeah, the tax collector is a fucking necromantic archmage. Like, what the fuck is happening? It's the whole time. But I just ran into this also in Call of Cthulhu a couple times because Call of Cthulhu, some of the monsters have spells. And we don't have any players casting spells in Call of Cthulhu. So my first experience with the spell system was when it came up with monsters. And that was something where the very first time it came up, I'm like, okay, hell, he's got some spells. Oh, that's another part of the book. Oh, I don't actually know how any of this works yet. Okay, so I think I can get this. And it was because it came up in, I think, the third adventure you guys went on. Like, it came up earlier than I expected to, and I hadn't really delved into the magic system because in Call of Cthulhu, like, the magic isn't front and center. Like, your characters don't start off with spells. Maybe there is one there is one occupation that can start off with, I think, one spell. But the players get into the spells slowly and at, frankly, great personal cost to their sanity. Yes, so, yes they yeah. do. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I wasn't ready really to run spells, and I saw, oh, the guy at the top, at the end of this module actually has spells. He's got several of them. So he's got Dominate, and, like, it's a different magic system, and it's different spell effects, and you need to understand what they do. Like, he had one spell called Wither that literally takes someone's limb and withers it away to, like, you know, the butler from uh, that's from Scary Movie. Like, that kind of thing. Like Take my uh, hand, child! No, exactly. the strong one! So, I mean, you kind of, I would say that, just a special caveat, as improv as you want to be, when you're dealing with any kind of spellcaster, especially if it's a system you're not familiar with, you need to do some studying up on their spells and to know what you're going to do with them, because you can easily hit that point where it's like, okay, it's the monster's turn, hold on, guys, let me go read the book. And then your players, that and that is a boring combat. And this will get back to, uh, we'll get back into later, I'm sure, but a big part of when you're in the middle of combat is you have to keep... Allow people's time, allow yourself some time, but keep it moving. Yeah. Especially if you have large parties, because that's that's what's going to create a slog better than any other fuck up you can do is just having to go back and start reading stuff. So, Tony, anything you wanted to add at this point? Circling back on tactics, if your party's all bunched together because they're traveling in a circle or a figure eight AOE attacks are ideal <laughs> for them to mix it up. And if your players are all acting like, you know, they're uh, a quarterback in the pocket who's 100 yards back from the Barbarian, they're easier to pick off. None of my encounters are really random. They're random in the sense of when they can occur or if they occur. But everything's planned, aside from how you guys have talked about spell prep and balancing and knowing your monsters. That's all super important. I'm very big on my treasure is not random. I I am a absolute, I cannot stand random treasure that completely grinds my gears that is a train wreck waiting to happen don't believe me you ever been in a party where you guys kill the two-headed dragon and the the paladin gets a plus four short uh, long sword and you get a ring of warmth yeah because that shit so, happens so tone just to just to back up on that because i know uh because i've attempted to modulate some things with uh, barovia in that way when you're talking about uh, you're not random with your treasure. You're talking specifically about pretty powerful magical items or artifacts, right? You're not talking about like literally random treasures in terms of coinage or or strange trinkets or rubies and gems or things like that or basic magic items. You're talking about like when you describe it, you're saying the paladin has a plus four sword and you have a drift globe. Is that more? If I could... has a drift globe, actually. Well, I'm saying, is that kind of more what you're talking about when you're... Because I like the idea of somewhat randomized treasure in the sense that there's weird stuff in this world. And not everybody just has, like, everything put together nicely and, you know, and, and and uh, you know, cataloged perfectly. You well, know, I mean, I, these are ancient ruins and such. I, I don't disagree with that. 
I have to say, though, if I'm going to give you out random treasure that doesn't work for your character, I have to give you an opportunity to hock it somewhere and get something you like. I can't be like, well, you know, you're a dark sun. You came across that those bagpipes of rat summoning and there's no rats and you have no magical <laughs> you know, no musical inclination. Sorry about your luck. Boy, I bet you would love a magic axe, wouldn't you, barbarian? Yeah, I can't help you. Um, I'm very, I try to be very cognizant of how much treasure I'm giving out in relation to are magical items available on the market in my world. And in my case, usually the answer is yes, somewhere. And all the magic items uh, I give out are, co- are calculated because I don't want someone either starving for them or dripping in them. Yeah, and I think it's you know, there, there's a bit of a philosophical discussion there, right? Between on the one hand, you want your world to feel organic and random, and you want the party to kind of also be a little creative about how to use the stuff you get. Yes. On the flip side, we get the fourth edition. We, you know, and at the extreme of this, there's fourth edition, but I think that some of what came up in fourth edition applies almost anywhere, which is that. If you go totally random magic items, well, you have characters who don't get the stuff they need. And that, you know, once you get into things like weapon specialization, once you get into things where, like, characters have certain builds, that can be annoying. And I think even if, you know, I like some, I do like to use random treasure, but at the same time, I tend to put loot drops in that are, okay, everyone gets something that is good for them at this level. Yeah. And so so I, I get what Tony's saying. I kind of I like it. I, as always, I like a little more organic randomness in the way I run my games. But that counterbalance that with, OK, now here you get this gift from someone who's helping you and everyone gets like two items that are relevant to them. And I know the like, yeah. you know, because you yeah. don't you don't want that situation where, you know, yeah, like Tony said, one player's running around with the with, with their specialized weapon at plus two. And the other player got like, you know, the fork of shark slaying. Like it's not really, you know, it, it was- doesn't feel fair. Yeah, no, I I would say I definitely am falling more along that same that same train of thought for in the sense that uh, that's what I used our Christmas game for, right? It was yeah. an easy way to do a a context at least uh, loot drop to allow for you know some some cool stuff for the characters because I was hearing that you know, but I also wanted to play with some of that organic randomness. So anyway. I will do a bit of both. So I will have random treasure. I will often roll random treasure on any encounter the party has, in D&D at least. I mean, Call of Cthulhu, you don't have it. But in, in D&D, I'll generally run random treasure after the combat. But 5th edition, also the random treasure tables aren't interesting. Mm. Like, you just run to someone in combat, you're just rolling, okay, how many Electrum do I give these dudes? It's not really that cool usually, so sometimes it's just a waste of time. However... I will then put in, like I said, like, okay, someone gifts the party, like kind of a Galadriel giving everyone a gift kind of deal and everyone gets something. Or I'll do like Ara Kang. I'll say, okay, Ara Kang is, he's a, he's an NPC. He's full of magic items. He's using the magic items against the party, but that item's good for the wizard. That item's yeah. good for the, for, for the, for the rogue. I'm not sure who like that item, but it's a useful item. The party can use that. And I'll give, I'll put like, so I'll put one item on that character for everyone in the party. So when they kill this, you know, big flying, stunning monk pinata, they <laughs> each have something to come out of it with in addition to the xp and yeah. unless they don't want to fight him again because he's just you know too much stun for them and i love how monks stun uh <laughs> characters i think the best mechanic in there i've got to bring our kang back just so tony can experience him i'm gonna he's gonna experience me throwing no. giant rocks at his face and he's gonna die that's how that's the gonna, problem. Dodge. We're gonna have. <laughs> the problem we're gonna have with that is that we're we've definitely leveled up since then we've definitely gotten a better handle on some of our abilities and stuff so I don't know if Arkang will have the same level of a uh, surprise as he had the last time, kind of thing. So is he. <laughs> no, I understand that. I understand. He's that. doing I a rocky montage a... in a gym. 
It was the surprise. It was the surprise factor, to tell you the truth. It was absolutely what it needed to be with that, which was which goes into planning for combats too, yeah. uh, which is the check to the party's badassery. It's awesome to have that badass thing, but if you're always that, as we've said, then you are playing on easy mode. So when you roll something out that the party could take if they're working together, if they're but it checks their power and it surprises them. It punches and draws blood. That is an effective tool. That is an effective tool. So just uh, don't overuse it. <laughs> if you, you can, as we saw, if you put the party in too many encounters where they don't feel like they can do anything, the party, even if they didn't lose the encounters per se, the party can lose interest. No one wants to play on easy mode and no one wants to play on nuclear death mode either all the time, right? I, I should say, I don't think we have any Dark Souls players in the party, which which may just be where that's, you know, why, why, why this is. <laughs> no one in the party, I don't believe. Tony, you haven't played Dark Souls, have you? I, I completely get the reference, though. Yeah. And I, I played like three levels of it. I didn't get any further. I got through like one boss. So that's, yeah, we're, we're not Dark Souls players, which tells you everything you need to know. <laughs> well, okay. if, we're, if you're playing this game and we, you know, three times a week, then sure, crank up the difficulty, rain back the treasure, rain back the XP, and we're doing a grind because we're in it for the long haul. That makes sense. And you've said that many times, that we're playing roughly each of these games roughly monthly, which changes the tone of the game and changes what you expect to accomplish in the game and does tend to push us. You, If you're playing monthly, you don't, you've got to, you've got to accomplish things. It's got to feel like you did something that month. It, a weekly game has a different cadence to it, a different pace to it. Yeah. So, so when you kill a dragon... Uh, so something like that, like if you had this monster on the board and you wipe him out, and this, you had this great opportunity that it comes back to the randomized treasure, you can't overwhelm or underwhelm the party because you can end up breaking things or really sucking the air out of that entire game. That's why I'm so against randomized treasure because I've also got randomized treasure where instead of one guy getting something that's really fantastic and we're all jealous, everybody gets all crap and we're like, wow, we should have like set up a toll booth somewhere. <laughs> We would have been better off just being just being tax collectors than being adventurers. They have more money in that. <laughs> this dragon sucked. He had like forty-two dollars. Yeah, there's not even hazard pay with it. You know, he was not he was not good at being a dragon. Like he he had, he hoarded like porcelain dolls or something, or yeah, he hoarded he hoarded he 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 hoarded bed sets from IKEA. All his money was in Bitcoin. Yeah, he hoarded <laughs> Bitcoin. You don't have access to the servers. <laughs> Oh, it's an ancient, an ancient, yeah, you're in like a future dying earth thing and you have this ancient, uh, you know, crypto and you're like, cool, I don't know what to do with this piece of code. I don't the know. dragon's like, neither do I. <laughs> but it was just shiny. Right. I lost my password months ago. <laughs> but I'm but I'm a multi-millionaire. Actually, we should I will say there you, crypto is uh you can do crypto and get your money out. I I, I understand. I've been told that. I, I don't know if you, I, don't, I don't know how you guys have fared. Getting back to combat and okay, so we talked a lot. We talked about prepping. Talked about you know kind of in, in prepping a treasure for it. How do you actually run it? So from the point you sit down, we we talked about you know you make sure you understand where the party is, then establish your initiative order, and where do you go from there? Well, once you're rocking and rolling, then you are gonna you know follow your initiative order simply enough. But like I said, you have this has to run smooth. It's a contract. You have, want to have your description on your attacks. I don't think that everything should be th this this cinematic, you know, blow for blow, play for play. That will, as Dave would say, slog the encounter. That'll get dry. It's too much. 
But I mean, unless you're in the right room for that and they're eating that up, then great. But most people aren't digging that. So I, I would just keep the turn. Like actually in Call of Cthulhu last night, the turnarounds flipped pretty well. I like that. And that's a little bit the way I'm running Call of Cthulhu, which I think is correct. Again, I'm a, I'm a new Call of Cthulhu keeper. But, you know, compared to D&D, D&D, every player has a move, an action, and a bonus action, potentially multiple attacks during their action. They could set up things to trigger on other turns. They interact with each other. And that is the D&D combat turn. So every player and every monster has all those things. In Call of Cthulhu, it's more like you do like one thing. You know, what do you do? You move, you attack, and it's so it's quick. You just, you know, I fire my gun. Okay, make your roll. I, I narrate what happens from your gunshot, which with the way the party was rolling last night, which is Call of Cthulhu is a roll low game on a D100, and the party was rolling like all over 90s for like the first combat. Like we had bullets flying all over this morgue with a zombie trying to choke a party member out. <laughs> and no one could hit anything at point blank range with the zombie. The, the, the rolls were insane. But you just, um, you just kind of, I just like, so it's a very snappy style of combat because it's you don't have a list of things to put together that you do you do one thing and you just tell me what you do i say you make your i, I tell you what role to make or you tell me yeah I get to, yeah you, you know what to do you know what to do and i narrate what happens and boom next person what are you doing and it is a very quick hit combat style because that's the way the game is designed yeah yeah i think that's that's a a big I caveat i kind of like that there's some advantages to it. It's a little more like second edition in some ways. Um, second edition D&D, I mean. But even in second edition D&D, you had more multiple attacks. Now, you can take multiple attacks in Call of Cthulhu. The players have not often opted to do it. And while there is one Tommy gun in the party, it's not with them at the moment. So we haven't really gotten, in, gotten too deeply into it. But even so, like even if you're doing multiple attacks, you're not generally doing like, okay, I run over to here. I get behind this pillar. I shoot. Hold on. What are my advantages? Okay, now what do I want to do with my bonus? Do I have a bonus? Um, um, no bonus. Move on. And I just did that in about a tenth of the time it takes in the real world for 5th edition. You know, Call of Cthulhu is just, boom. It's just, okay, I, I want to shoot it with my gun. All right, make your roll. I narrate it, and now the next thing starts happening. And it's, uh, it, it's you know, it's funny because it's not like it's not, like, granular. It's not like it's not detailed. It's pretty detailed, but it's just, it's one thing at a time, which keeps it. It's just different. It's just different. And that's a big, like I was saying, that's a big caveat to all of this is there are, uh, all of what we'll talk about is useful in every system, but... Something like D&D or games similar to it, it's going to just run differently. Things like Marvel, mm -hmm. things like Call of Cthulhu, right, that we're playing, they run completely different. Now, but just as a real quick aside, something like a superhero game like Capes and Crooks that's based on 5e, that's going to run a lot more like 5e because it's going to have an action and a bonus action and a reaction and a move and a work with an item and a, and a, and a, so. And I mean, and let's call, let's call, let's, let's call it what it is here. Fifth edition is set up a little bit more like a board game or minis game where on yeah. your turn, you get to string these things together in a tactically beneficial way. Yeah. There is Absolutely. an optimization to fifth edition combat that is part of the game, that is part of what players are there for. So even though it slows down compared to these other games we're playing, that is part of what the game is. That's part of the appeal and part of the fun. Exactly. It's just on the, as the DM, you got to try to manage it to make it move as fast as it can while letting the players still enjoy what they can do. Absolutely. So it's not it's not a complaint, but I mean, I get what Tony's saying. It, there is a real there there is something that you really like about snappier you know just chippier combat just boom go boom go boom go and it is more everyone's there but specifically it's it 
the advantages of it are specifically because you're not making tactical decisions and there is not the tactical side of the game, which is one of the things that people enjoy about D&D. So it's a trade. Exactly. You know, I also remember those. I mean, I don't disagree with any of that, but I've, we've all been at that table where you have one player who's acting like it's their America against Russia in a gold medal finalist game of chess. And <laughs> it, yeah. it, it's really rough. There's like one of those moments where it's like, okay, you know, Bob's up. Let me go to the bathroom. And in the bathroom, I'm checking my text messages. I'm like you know, splashing water on my face. I come back. Nope. It's so halfway around the table. That, that, that's some rough stuff. Now, honestly, Call of Cthulhu is not designed really to be combat heavy, however. That is the flip side of that. But I, I would really, to keep your combats interesting, I think it's super critical to keep the flow going as it should be. So no one's getting skipped or cheated, but it's not dragging. Yeah, and it's and it's a tough balance to hit sometimes because like we actually have we've had minis gamers and magic gamers in the games and I know um, so 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 we have the one gamer in the in Woodstock Wanderers who is a minis gamer he likes a little bit more tactical combat and tactical he likes a little more uh, fixed tactical aspect of the combat like he likes to know like okay can I move here what's the terrain what can I use to my advantage I don't know if he would like Call of Cthulhu combat because you really you can do that stuff abstractly in Call of Cthulhu, but like it's not, it's all just kind of abstract. You know, it's like, oh, I want to get some cover and then take a shot. It's, it's. I think that's a good way to describe it abstract versus this concrete tactical grid idea. And they're, they're just, they're different things to enjoy. But in either case, like Tony said, you want to keep them moving. It's easier with Call of Cthulhu or even with older, some, some, in some ways with older D&D, although we've also all had the older D&D game where a player had like six attacks around and that <laughs> seemed to take forever to, to, to work out. Wait but, until I run that Rifts game for you. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, it'd be fun. This Earth Dragon. has got eight attacks. Yeah. Yeah, we got it. Yeah, we, it's, uh, I played some riffs with, with you guys. I remember it a little bit. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's just, it seems like I like the idea of being a dragon. Uh, I do have we'll the Council of we'll box see. set here. We haven't broken that out from second Stay edition. Stay tuned, audience. We might have, uh, we might be discussing Rift's play One at day. some point. We'll One see. Day. We'll see. I will say the article has done well. It has gotten some attention. So, I mean, basically, apparently there's a public who wants to hear us play Rift. So I'm just going to put that out. We have, a, we, we have an audience for it. So, yeah, you know, Tony, you mentioned one of the really important things, though, which is keeping combat moving. I have struggled with that before where I'm trying to balance, okay, this player enjoys thinking through their turn and taking a tactical approach, but it's driving everyone else at the table crazy. And sometimes, I mean, when I'm thinking more of some fourth edition games, that was a real problem. What do you do to move it along? That's extremely difficult to coach because when I'm a player in one of those situations, and I've said this before, even if I'm playing a wizard, like this one person's like, hmm... I'm going to do a double move, use my action points. Then I'm going to try, can I get partial cover on this? And then you're like 11 minutes into this. My contact lenses are drying out. And then as the wizard, I'm like, I move six uh, spaces. I cast fireball. These guys are all hit. They take 27 damage. My DC is 18. Done. And I just look at the other guy. <laughs> I think a big, uh, I, I think it's a like big My beard's growing. I think a big part of that, what's behind that, not always, not always, because uh, Thorne, you are absolutely correct. Is there that I'm impatient? Who, no, 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 no. Well, there is uh, that. I mean, there, there, there is I am impatient. between players, too, and the, which is part of what makes us tough, because some players really value taking the time to figure out their turn. Other players really want them to get the move on. And that is what makes it hard, because if you had all the table, if the whole table was like slow and patient, well, that's not a big deal. OK, we just play a little slower. If the whole pl if the whole table moves fast, that's also easy to fix. Like it's easy to, to, to not fix. You don't have to fix it. 
it's easy to do. It's when you have the players themselves with different expectations that makes it tra- that makes it challenging. Yeah, but I think what I was what I was getting at with what's behind that really is sometimes not just whether a person's impatient or they like to to play a chess match, but how much do they understand the system and the game fully and they're learning. So the reason that Tony is able to besides his impatience, right? But the reason that Tony is able to say, I move six spaces, I cast Fireball, here's my DC, and here's the amount of damage they do, he has already done all of the steps that are required for an entire turn in D&D, utilizing an area of effect thing like Fireball. Now, in my Frostmaiden campaign, where I have three completely new players who are asking what Goodberry does, right? I cannot expect them to when their turn comes up. They like so when I'm going around the table, I like to oftentimes you're like Thorin, you're up. Okay, Tony, you're on deck, right? To let them know you're next up in the initiative, right? Because I have it with me on my whiteboard. You're next up, so start thinking about what you're gonna do. You know, it might change, but start thinking about it. It's a way. But they don't even know what an area of effect is. And wait, okay, my DC. So is that my attack modifier or and so that's going to take some time. And I think in a, in a game like Woodstock, where we have a mix of very experienced and very basic players, that's a big part of it, is they are learning the system and learning how to use the system to the way that they like to interact with the game. I don't feel that there is really anything. You, I wouldn't try to speed up that character if they're legitimately taking their time and trying to plan the move tactically and they enjoy that. I would not want to take that away from that player. And if some people play fast, that's their prerogative. As the DM, what can we control about this? I would want to make sure that these players all feel like they've accomplished something or certain things in this game. If they get stuck in one combat because one guy's farting around for 23 minutes over two rounds, then that's rough. Then they're like, wow, thank yeah. God I waited four weeks of this game so we could, you know, we got 27 copper pieces, 119 XP. This is this is fantastic. Good job, team. Let's still, we, the accomplishments need to occur, the story needs to move, and then, then they'll be okay with that. Yeah. Tony, to back up on that point, too, uh, and to kind of answer what Thorne was saying, is I think there's a difference with when, when the table's going around, there is the player who is trying to learn and is trying to to better understand the system and how to utilize their character and these new abilities that they just gained or whatever it might be. And then the person who just dicks around. So the person who's learning, generally speaking, I found the table is supportive of that. They might want to offer some suggestions. They might want to be really excited about what they're going to do, yada, yada, as opposed to the dick and around player. And that's the person where I will give a space of time but I absolutely will start a countdown on them and let them know, okay, what are you doing? You have, you know, what are you doing? Five, four, three. Okay. And if you don't, it's moving along to teach them because if you're just going to dick around, then that's, that's not helpful for the table. So I absolutely will put a, a countdown. I haven't had to do it for a while, but I absolutely would do I that. think I remember the last game you had to do it. In. <laughs> I mean, I think, was, was it slavers? Probably slavers. Right? It was probably slavers. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Yeah, I would say the other the other thing I would add to this too is sometimes it's new players. You don't necessarily know the game as well as you know, like like Tony or me or you, Dave. And and whereas we often kind of have, 
You know, the number one thing that encourages fast play is that the player is thinking of what they want to do as it comes to their turn. So when you get to their turn, they know what they're doing and they just do it and move on. And the next player gets to take their turn. Uh-huh. The, the one thing that makes that hard is, as you said, Dave, when it's a newer player and they don't know the system. So they don't know those things very well. The other thing uh, I have definitely DM some games with some people who perhaps mentally couldn't move that quickly or they were not really capable of kind of abstractly understanding what the board was going to look like when it came to them. So they kind of had to each had to reach, had to get to each new turn individually And you couldn't really, you know, I mean, look, not everyone is that adept at the mental gymnastics of playing games like this. Sometimes they need to see the board when it gets to them before they can decide what to do just from their own capability point of view. And I think that's the other thing is, you know, you can't always expect everyone to be able to be the tournament magic player or the, the, the tournament <laughs> D&D player. You know, a lot of players are like, oh, oh, it's my turn. Uh, I guess I'll move here. And then the other guy tells them, no, you shouldn't move there because there's a the thing you didn't think. I was like, oh, oh, you're right. I should move here. And then, you know, and, and they kind of have to walk through it. And it's tricky to DM that because you want them to move faster. But at the same time, you, you know, you want to recognize, you know, you, 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 this is who they are. This is this is how fast they play this game. Well, I think a player like that would excel more in theater of the mind because the mm-hmm. map, while it is what it is, is an additional working component of the game. So if they do an exact move, now they're calculating, now they're looking at terrain, now they're looking at cover, it does slow things down. You know, good battery. It defense. does. I will say, and I that might be where Thorne's about to go because it was what I was thinking about as you were saying this. We actually heard back after our theater of the mind episode from people that said, that's awesome, but I actually can't visualize in my imagination because of some issues. I literally can't visualize theater of the mind. I need something concrete. So again, all of these levers and dials are very, you know, understand how to use them, but then use them in the context of your game because that could change drastically. Yeah, and, it's, and I can also think of some players I've had who can't follow Theater of the Mind description. I, and I, I, I've I been doing Theater of the Mind for a very long time. I'm fairly good at it, I think. <laughs> I like to Hell, think I'm fairly good at it. I sometimes and, have trouble following Theater of the Mind at times yeah. with certain descriptions. I've had it in, in both of your guys' games where I'm like, okay, wait, where exactly is this and that and the other? Because everyone is processing information in the way that they're processing it at that time, too. So I've even had trouble with it. So that's the tricky thing. It's not always – so it's like it's it's easy to say, okay, he's just got theater of the mind instead. The problem is sometimes that's the same person who isn't good at following theater of the mind, and they're getting lost as you're doing your description. So you strip down your description. You make your description more simplistic. However, once you make your description more simplistic, you're now losing a lot of the role play aspect because it kind of just becomes you hit, you damage, move on. Mm. Well, with that said, uh, the way I addressed the theater of the mind in the last game that I ran, and it was the Marvel game, I rolled out a description. I said, here's your environment first, so you know where you were. Then you had the encounter. I explained. I had a couple lines on who this person was. Maybe you recognized them. Maybe they did not. Maybe it was a new NPC altogether. Then I put something on the whiteboard and Roll20, a picture of this character. So there was not... And I'm not saying there was no visual aids. I'm not saying that we don't need to completely cut those out entirely, but there was no maps. And I know some people love maps to death, you know, the, you know, the hell and back again, but they're not always 100% necessary. It's just like, like Dave said, we've had some feedback from people who can't visualize combat without a map. 
Same you know, thing. So I mean, it's, it's like yeah. when if you're in teaching at all, there's different ways people process information and some people are stronger in some ways. So there are some people who in chemistry class can absolutely understand the spatial arrangement of molecules in their minds. That's cool. Give me the balls and the fucking sticks and shit, right? I need the balls and the sticks. Give me those, you know? <laughs> so everyone has their strengths anyway. So again, I think that's a great takeaway uh, that Thorne said earlier, context. You know, that's that's important with all these. And that's the thing. As much as we're talking, we're trying to give you tips for how to run your combat. And what does come down to know your party, right? Because it's who's in your party. How do you balance your impatient players versus your slower players? How do you balance your players who really need a map and maybe need a minute to understand what's going on versus your players who get it immediately, know exactly what they need to do and can move forward with it? Gives you, that's, that's stuff that you got to handle on a party-by-party -party basis, on a, on a campaign, game-by-game basis and you can't necessarily say here's one good way to do it that works for everybody at the same time you can tell if your players are smiling and having a good time yeah and that's kind of the big thing you know if your players are having a good time you're doing it right if your players aren't having a good time well you know you're probably i wouldn't say maybe may, you know are you not doing it right or are you just not in the right group for you those are these are the questions you need to start asking uh <laughs> but that i think is one of the things you got to look at i did want to get to another question on this and how aggressively do you guys go after the party in a combat? Like, do you come in there to try to, like, tactically take them apart? Or are you just coming in there to roll some monsters at them for them to steamroll? For them to steamroll? How do you approach that? Do you, you know, is it right for the weaknesses? Is it, you know, is it just, okay, run, run? Or are you trying to more, like, run them into the things they want to fight? Yeah, I absolutely try to grind my party into dust. Like, I'm going for the jugular <laughs> for the moment of initiative to the last the last dying breath of my monster. He's surrounded <laughs> by six players. Surrender? No. Fuck that. I, you will have to decapitate me. All my friends are dead. Now I'm going down swinging like I have rabies. No, but I mean, that really depends. I, I would like, know, Tony. I'm going to call you out. You're a fucking liar. Cause I'm Roderick, kidding, obviously. Roderick absolutely was rarely targeted for the reason that you knew I would be dead with a shot. So, you know, I'm calling you out on your badass DM stuff. <laughs> you absolutely will modulate. <laughs> um, it, you know what? The, the thing there was you had a really great tank in that party. Honestly, yeah, if, if you got within like a city block of your barbarian, they had disadvantage in all attacks against anybody but the person who soaks all the damage. It was a mess. You also that and also Zhang was the way I played Zhang was Zhang was playing sweeper to try to knock out anyone who tried yeah, like depending on the combat. So you had the you had the barbarian in the front and you had Zhang with all of his reach kind of running around and trying to knock people out. His reach and his battle master skills to knock people prone or scare them so they can't move forward. No, so we, we kind of have built a, good tactics. Yeah, we definitely yeah. built good party tactics. But and, I'm and sorry, I'm, Tony, continue. Yeah, Tony very seldom attacked us from the back there, though, which is kind of what I'm getting at, right? Because it's like, how often do you go for the jugular? Tony never launched an attack. Like, the dragon never swooped down and ate Roderick. <laughs> oh, God. Um, I want to hang on. I want to point out that... <laughs> The Barbarian was swallowed by two different creatures in my game. The guy who could take it was swallowed by two different creatures in your game. Yes. Right. <laughs> so it's also, I have to say, some of those battles I ran in Storm King's Thundered were extremely heated. I'm looking for yeah. that. I was looking for that tension. I wanted to dial up. I wanted you guys to have a hot shower, but I didn't want you to have third degree burns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were definitely some good. I mean, there was there were some some hard combats in there. Definitely. 
like that Frost Giant battle. I mean, seriously, what was the CR rating of that battle? Like that was literal. Like CR it, uh, a million, I think. <laughs> I mean, it was like twenty three fucking Frost Giants on a fucking boat. Like we were well, just guys, if you want to screw with the Yarl, you know everybody wants to be the Yarl until it's time to do Yarl shit. Let's like the city. You want to be the best, you got to beat the best. I think we did your all shit. We brought our own frost giants with us, and we freed the dragon to fight against them. And then we cut the ship in half and just, just you know, really... we didn't quite solo the Jarl, but we, we had the Jarl in, like, three or four other frost giants. We were like, very Mr. Rogers, man. We were just like, won't you be my neighbor and help me overtake this kingdom? You know, and we are, just are brought our saying... friends with us. You, you, Roderick brought that Game of Thrones vibe without being so douchey. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say not douchey. I'm just, you know. <laughs> no, he he never came off like that. But you were really strong on building alliances. And in this situation, you guys realized there was no way you were going to deal with all of these, dare I say, giant adversaries with a frontal assault. And that for me, that was great because I was so sick of in second edition where my players, at least the group I had at the time for years, every problem was frontal assault. Kick the door in, and either we kill everybody or we're killed. And if we're killed, it's because I overclocked the encounter. Oh, I hate that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we talked about that. I had the player in fourth edition who was like, I should be able to, you know, anyone you put in front of us, if I can't take them down, you've, you've, you've DM'd it wrong. And I'm like, no, that was just, he was out of your league and you were just an asshole. I'm like, so you laid siege to a fire giant stronghold and you're pissed off that there's too many fire giants in here? I mean, we're, it's not like you were in a subway and fire giants started piling out of the subway and started kicking your ass. No, I mean, we definitely felt the uh, I think we definitely felt the tension in some of those. And that's, for instance, why in the fire giant stronghold in Storm Kings, we specifically tried not to just engage in fisticuffs because we saw the the level of we didn't have advantage like we had in some of the other ones. Um, and I would say I I would probably run it similarly uh, I'm not trying to grind the party to dust. I'm not trying to swing my big DM dick around or something like that, right? But if you walk into certain uh, areas, like, for instance, when you guys came to the ruins of Berez with Baba Lysaga, that was, it was going to run the way it was going to run. I mean, one of your party definitely died. I mean, you brought him back. But, you know, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't playing, you know, temporarily. Yeah, exactly. Mostly, mostly dead. dead. Just mostly dead. Yeah, I wasn't playing patty cake with that one. So, you know, I uh, I didn't play baby steps with it, but uh, you walked in and it could have gone really poorly. It it didn't because uh, you guys, I, I started to then realize how powerful uh, your characters can become at times. So, <laughs> which has adjusted some other encounters, but... <laughs> And I think for me, part of this question isn't just how big of a, an encounter do you throw out there, but it's how do you run the encounter? You know, do you run everyone into the barbarian tank or do you run one person into the tank to distract it versus and then take everyone else and run around the tank and attack the back line? You know, mm. do you go after the wizard? Do you knock down the healer? Do you counterspell the healing spell? Like, and I guess the question isn't how often do you do it. It isn't, isn't just do you do it, but how often do you do it? Like, I do feel like I feel like one out of roughly one out of every three battles should be fought not on the party's terms. Should be fought on the monsters' terms, where the monsters are doing intelligent things that really disrupt the party. The other two encounters should be okay. The party gets to do it their way. The party gets to roll. Maybe they roll them, maybe not. But the party gets to operate the party as per the party plan. 
And then the third encounter should be like, okay, yeah, except for this guy in the front. Okay, your tank is tanked, and they can't get away from the guy they're fighting, which means they can't protect your wizards from the people who are attacking the wizards. And maybe they came in from behind. Maybe your guy gets pulled away by something. You know, the monster comes in and teleports away with your character. I've done that twice now. Admittedly, it's I mean, maybe twice has been too often to come back to the well. But, you know, I think there's a place for the the monsters played dirty by attacking the players where they weren't really set up to take them on. And I think the question is, how often do you do it? For me, it's about one in three. So do you guys do that at all? And if so, how often? Well, honestly, I feel like that's a question of the intelligence of your opponents. So mm-hmm. you got a bunch of ogres. They're like, Meh, and they rush up and attack the first guy they see. Fine. Giants are yeah. reasonably intelligent and cunning. So if a couple well, of guys are already- giant, but yeah. They're bodied up with a barbarian and they see other guys that are loose and hitting him in the backfield, they will most certainly advance on them. And if you don't do that, I feel it kind of cheapens the continuity of your your environment. But in all seriousness, as a wizard, nobody ever protected me. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> yeah, Tony, I literally that was that was my note right here. It's very much depending on the intelligence of the foe. Like you said, three ogres are not going to, you know, try to get at the heat. They don't even know what the fuck a healer is. They just see dinner, right? Right. But uh, that's going to play very differently than someone like Count Strahd, who has been actively looking at the party and seeing what they do and 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 those types of machinations. That's going to play very differently when you walk into that lair or when you walk into, you know, the mummy's lair, for instance, or... Uh, when you went to Kresk and and dealt with the abbot, they're going to approach you differently and not always in a necessarily let's just go to fisticuffs, right? They're, they might try other things to try to change it too. So yeah, very much the intelligence of the creature. And then that's going to affect too what they do with each round. If we do get into combat, who are they going to go after? Are they going to realize that that person is a weak link and I can seriously injure this whole party and escape with my life if this is the case. So what what do you think clues them in? I mean, I generally feel like the monsters can read armor. You know, they can monsters can tell, okay, the the paladin's in full plate. He is a harder target than the wizard in the back who's wearing just like the pointy hat and robes. Although surprisingly the wizard often has shield and some other tricks. So maybe they got to learn that too. <laughs> Yeah. I appreciate all those wizard tricks. That's some good stuff. <laughs> you kind of need them in my games. Yeah, because I do. I do go out of my way to attack the wizard. I try to. It's not that I go out of my way to attack them, but I make sure that you can't stand totally safely in the back line. You know, I make sure everyone's under some threat most of the battles. I appreciate that you bring the monsters to me so I don't have to chase them down. Ah, there you go, right? <laughs> to a point, yeah. That that depends. What is the what is the battleground look like? That's gonna affect how they react to it. So I would kick back again. I'm gonna mention it again, the triangle of evil. Because your monster is gonna play very differently from your villain, which is gonna play very differently from your amorphous organization. They are all going to approach the combat in a very different way. They're gonna attack certain things because they understand pressure points, they understand those types of, not pressure points in terms of physical, but pressure points within the party and the tactics, you know? And that's why I think somebody like uh, Keith Ammon doing uh, the monsters know what they're doing, I think is some great stuff because it can give you ideas as to how to think outside because we all can get lost in that okay well i have this stat block and i got to use these powers 
but it can start to be like, why are you choosing that? Just like you choose, why is your character casting this or swinging that over something else? Why is the monster doing that? You know, what's the no, situation? What's the context? No lie. The first time I saw the monsters know what they're doing in the bookstore, I took a picture of it and posted it to my Facebook said, God damn it. I should have written this first. <laughs> so like this kind of thing has been on my mind my whole life. Motherfucker stole my book, <laughs> which isn't fair. It's just, it's a great book in its own right. Totally different than what I would have written. But I mean, it's like, that was my reaction having DM for years and years when I saw the book. I'm like, God damn it. I missed another opportunity. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, how many people probably saw that and went, ah, I should have written. Oh. Yeah, right? I mean, who didn't have that idea? <laughs> because it is. Like, if you're a good DM, you start to feel like, okay, yeah, my monsters know what they're doing. They're playing in the way that makes sense for them to try to kill the party. Without maybe necessarily killing members of the party more than once every four or five fights. It's been a while since I dropped any of you to zero hit points. I will say that's a good example of what brought about I mean, the greatest module in the history of D&D. I mean, the whole reason Ravenloft started in the first place with Hickman and Weiss was that they were playing in a home game. And they write about this in the in the original. They were playing in a home game and they were going through a dungeon. The DM was running them through a dungeon. And they're going, you know, from here, it's, a, it's an owlbear and it's a troll and you come across a mummy. And they walked in one room and it was a vampire. And he explains, he's like, he thought about it when he was heading home that night. He was like, why the hell was that guy there? Like, what? It made no sense. This <laughs> vampire jumps out. And that was the impetus and the, the spark that made them go, okay, what if we created this villain of this vampire where you're in his lair and it's very Count Dracula? And that created Ravenloft. So it's a perfect idea of, you know, the monsters know what they're doing and how you're approaching the party changes drastically with who are they and why are they? I think that's a very important point to your continuity. Just like if uh, monsters aren't using proper tactics that are uh, consistent with their intelligence, the, the selection of monsters, if it, if it doesn't jive with the environment, then mm. either there's a good reason for that and the players haven't figured that out yet, or it feels like you're, you're doing some sloppy writing. So then related to this, how do you pick your targets? when you're actually running your combat. We talk, like, how do you actually decide who's attacking who? Well, I think that all depends. The players have a lot of uh, agency there. You're setting up the marching order. So I already kind of know where my monsters are or where they're coming in. So you've picked this. Seriously, you guys have agency. Do you want to have all your warriors in a formation up front? Is that one wizard, you know, 85 yards down the hall in the bathroom, peeking out behind 90% cover with a flashlight? Like, what's happening? So then, I mean, do you just have the monsters attack whoever's closest to them? Well, if they're not, then I'd have to have a decent reason within their intelligence of that. So if they run out there and they, they run into the cleric, are they going to attack the cleric? Well, why not? Now, I mm. mean, if the barbarian's up there, the barbarian's going to draw a lot of aggro normally. Like, that's their function, but... You know, I kind of let it unfold organically as possible. Yeah, I would I would back up on Tony's point because I, I think that's similar. The, I think the party will kind of push how they're, it's going to interact. If they are walking in unbeknownst, when you guys walk into the Amber Temple and you come across the Arcanal the first time, it's just kind of where is everybody? And I'm going to send off some volleys to, like, you know, get you the hell out of here type of thing because that's in essence that – that are cantaloupe, that's their, their, they're meant to be kind of a protector of this temple, you know, and, and destroy or get people to retreat. But that's also going to depend. Is this a character that's stupid and is stuck into a corner? Okay, well, they're only going to fight to the death, but if it's a beast 
and they can escape because they've got this this meal is not tasty now right i'm a shark but i just got punched in the nose maybe i'm <laughs> going to move along right well, those bad shark as propellant. yeah as opposed to you know like the arcanaloc who's going to he's going to deal out some damage but he's not going to sit there and go toe-to-toe with a barbarian he's going to teleport or dimension door over here fire off a couple more things and get the fuck out of dodge because this is way past what i signed up for same so thing, about- Strahd is not yeah. someone who's going to sit there and go in a boxing fucking match with Hawk, right? He's not going to step into a wrestling ring with this guy, you know? He's not an idiot. I'm very disappointed. I was really hoping I'm that. I'm sorry, it's not back. happening, Tony. Oh, you, you will Dave, have opportunities man. in other ways for it, not with Strahd. I'm just going to let you know now. I don't, don't want to spoil it. You'll get to Strahd. <laughs> he, yeah. he, he won't step in the squared circle with me? Oh, that's, you know, that's you don't fucking, yeah, yeah, come on, you know. I mean, I know these days they wrestle Vince McMahon, but back in the day, no one wrestled <laughs> Vince McMahon. He was just the big, you know, he was the leader guy. You know? That's why we had the werewolf clan reader later, Randy Macho Wolf Savage. Yeah, I literally wrote out some Macho Man for you. There's your fucking wrestling match, okay? <laughs> you don't get strong. <laughs> okay. I don't know. We already got it. We, did we get Bobble Saga with the wrestling match, or was it the night? Or was it the? Oh, high- no, yeah, no. A Hawk powerbomb Lysaga out of the uh, out of her ship. But that was awesome because he leapt into the tree, got up to the top, and then leapt out the window to her ship and and took her out from there. Because so she was Hawk act- is very smart. Yeah, she was actively trying to uh, to defeat you guys, and get out of the way. But you just, you know, good tactics. So. It I, meant that, I meant that sarcastically. My character was an idiot, and you know, he <laughs> extremely dangerous things that get him killed. I don't know if he jumped on the Bobble Asaga's flying skull. I don't know how you're keeping Strahd out of his uh out of his out of his grasp. Well, I mean, he has some tricks. I'm just saying. He's gonna mind control me and make me put the Cobra Clutch on you. Well, that would not be a bad idea. Not 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 a bad idea at all. But It'd don't like- you have the mindless rage? Well, no. he's actively, you know, you're literally actively turning heel as we speak. So, like, you know, I mean, yeah, I, but I'm going to push back. Cool, against but, that. I mean, the party is on a clock right now. So, <laughs> so I mean, I guess for me, you know, I, I, t- I tend to I guess I do a combination of things you guys mentioned as far as how am I choosing who to attack and how to attack. I tend to take it monster turn by monster turn or I should say probably NPC turn by NPC turn, but they kind of have their plan coming in unless they're stupid. You know, it depends on who they are and is there someone smart running them or is it just kind of monsters? You know, yeah, if it's like, if it's a bunch of wild boars that just rush out to attack you guys, if it's ogres, they probably just run out to attack you guys. If it's, you know, um, vampires controlling other vampires and other minions, they're going to, the whole battle's going to play out a little differently. Uh, we had a death call that was answering to a uh, to a larval mage who had some other star spawns around. The death claw was smart because it was being you know, kind of controlled by the larval mage, so that played a little differently than if the if it was just a mindless thing kind of reaching out to attack you. The death claw played smarter. Like it it would try to find an isolated character and stab them and take them away and go kill them away from the party. Although yeah. fortunately for some of your party members, he couldn't teleport that far away. <laughs> it was like, yeah, it's, it's like, okay, oh, where'd they go? Yeah, there's a scream 30 feet away in the woods. Well, I guess it's over there. Let's go. Let's go <laughs> there are our limits, escape. right? There are limits, yeah. Unless um, you're going to, like, draw out a teleportation circle or something. <laughs> yeah. I think it's fun. It's not necessarily every combat, but I think it's fun during a few combats to do something like that, where it's like, okay, one character's getting some focus fire because it mixes things up. 
you know, it's like, okay, a lot of the time you can just go, okay, the, 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 the tanks get to get, get, get the tanks, the, maybe the, the, the enemies, archers or spellcasters, they might target your spellcasters or they might try to concentrate on the tanks. But I think it's nice to kind of have a plan that's like, okay, someone came in and abducted the bar. Someone came in and they, they, they just, and they just dropped your war. Like they came in from behind and just dropped your warlock. I think it's, need to do that kind of thing because it really forces the party to kind of think on their feet and react then. And in a in a similar way, on the other side, I think the party will sometimes create that opportunity for you in the same way. I would draw us back to Argonvost Holt when you guys mm-hmm. stepped into the trap, which separated Hawk and Sir Scar from the rest of the party. So that focused the fire very quickly because you chose the you chose your doom right in a way but you know we weren't really that far behind those guys though they were like five feet in front of us you dropped the wall between us <laughs> that well i'm saying but the party created that or i would say uh in woodstock with when ogen walked we were in the caverns at one point this is sessions and sessions ago oh yeah but she decided to walk i'm just gonna go see and walked into a gelatinous cube you know i mean like the party will sometimes decide Who's getting the focus fight? You don't have to necessarily even plan it out. They fucking gift wrapped it for you, right? <laughs> sometimes that's true. Sometimes, sometimes that happens. Yes, or like, or even the other way around, where in the uh, Slavers Bay fight, um, where where Hannibal was running around being a wild wolf in the night while the party yeah. slept, so then the party was ambushed at camp, and Hannibal couldn't get back in time for the fight. You yeah, know, it's like. He- because you had taught me, you had said, "Okay, I'm going to be running around a lot in the woods." I said, "Okay, cool." <laughs> and you taught me my party can't take care of themselves very well. And, yeah, and they need uh, they need the beast, you know. <laughs> I think he reacted to that. You know, they say your cat thinks of you as like just a stupid kitten that's very bad at being a cat. So that's, why, that's why your cat brings you gifts of like you know, mice and stuff because they just think they think of you as a big kitten who isn't very, who can't take care of itself. I think that's sort of the attitude that uh, that, that Hannibal took to the rest of the party after that. <laughs> All right, so. Uh, one more thing I want to get to before we get to final thoughts here, which is large combats. Now we started this talk by saying, Tony, you saying flat out, you don't like them. Like you, like that large combats tend to slog. You tend to lead to a boring fight when you have too many monsters on the board. I feel like there are times I want to have a lot of monsters on board and I want to have a tactically interesting, diverse combat, whether that is for a showdown kind of boss fight to soften up the party, or it's like the bad guys have, okay, the bad guys are trying to take you out now. When do you run a lot of monsters? Is it ever okay? And when you do, how do you handle that without it bogging down? Well, if you're going to do that, then it just has to have a point and you have to go into there and consider that this is going to be a serious combat. Uh, a lot of monsters I have run that uh, you, you can run that effectively. Sometimes I group some guys together on the initiative. Like I'm not going to obviously have, if I have five gnolls, each of these five gnolls aren't going to have all their separate initiatives and yeah. all the goblins are going to have their separate initiatives. That turns into a train wreck. Um, like, oh, is, it, is this goblin? No, I think that goblin went. And at one point I made that mistake. I'm like, this is completely out of hand. But sometimes a large battle is awesome. It's very cinematic. It could be a very, you know, very climatic, tense moment in the party when they're like, wow, we have really gotten it over our head. We're outnumbered six to one in this battle. And that's, that's, that's something that it's very movie worthy and it's fantastic, but it's got to have a point and it can't be a regular occurrence. You can't have be like, oh, it's Tuesday and I'm outnumbered seven to one again, because then when is the tension? <laughs> We're outnumbered 11 to one. Yeah. Uh, Tone, I would, I would, I, I agree with you. Uh, but it depends because uh, it can, it can 
shift again the context of it i will say i have uh four examples here i'll be very quick uh the woodstock game that we just did with the vampires and the mist and all of that right it was an awesome session with that said it absolutely was long in the sense of long between your turns because thorn was attempting to create that multiple attack points on their own initiatives so we were looking at an initiative tracker of like 15 deep so mm. it was a while until you came back to your point and a ton of the battlefield could have changed by that point so there are levers there um I will say with that, it that would run wildly differently in person as opposed to over online. You but think so? I think so, yeah, because you're more you're more actively seeing what's happening amongst the other people, and you're playing off that energy. I think a little bit more. Um, so the longness of cutting around the table, uh, I think, could be could could lessen slightly. Um, we'll find out when we when we get back to some some live stuff, but. Um, the final battle in my Pathfinder campaign where they ascended Gallows Spire to fight the evil cleric and the dragons and all of that, that was an entire session of getting through that town and up the spire. But it, they loved it because it was the big final confrontation. It doesn't always have to be a final confrontation. The Ruins of Berez and Yester Hill were both massive combats in the Curse of Strahd campaign, especially Yester Hill. Um, On that Halloween. Was, that was huge. Yeah, it was huge. It was most of the, I think it was pretty much the entire session. But my read of it was that it was an enjoyable session because so much was happening amongst all of the different players and the enemies and, and different factions and all of that. So so it can be the, the, the longness of it, but you have to be modulating. If it just is turning into a slugfest, that's bad news. You know, kill off your villain at that point. So... I want to come back to so th this battle we had recently in the last Woodstock Wanderers yeah. was um, now the party knew like at the end of the last session there were mists coming into town. Uh, we had some conversation before we got into the combat, but the party knew the town like they were in the castle above the town. They knew the town something was going on. You started getting reports of screams and stuff. Yeah. They, they they flew over what could have been an encounter when they first left the uh, when they first left the castle because there was a lot of vampiric mist around. And they went to town. <laughs> in the town, they could only see about 30 feet in front of themselves. And we had, I had two, two true vampires, six feral vampires. I want to say four, uh, four dwarves with muskets. I think that was it. So I think it was, um, oh, right, no, there were three vampires because there were two spellcasting vampires and one vampire uh, warrior. So basically, out of the, yeah. using the vampire templates. Um so the party fought them, but they were in mist. So, like, at first, they only saw one vampire spawn. And at the same time, everyone else was kind of closing on them from through the mist. And then, they, you know, some people started shooting them from in the mist. And then as time rolled on, more and more of the combat came into them. Now, I was afraid it was going to be too much combat too long. But the impression I took away from the table, players went out of their way to tell me they, tell me they had a great time and they loved the combat. Yeah. Now we get in here and you guys are both like, eh, it was a bit long, took too long getting around the turns. Which oh, one no. did I listen to? <laughs> no, 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 no. I said what I said was it is absolutely was an excellent session. With that said, even being an excellent session, there was a long time until your next turn came up because we were a good 15 initiative trackers deep. 
So I was backing off Tony's point with when you have multiple monsters and how we group them, it's very helpful to drop them in different spots because it does increase that tension. It doesn't let you, the party just beat up by the time the monster comes back around. Which is which is what I did. Like so, each of those monsters was when the the vampires all went at once. The vampire spawn all yep. went at once. Yes. Exactly. The, uh, the the guys with the guns all went at once. Also, at one point, some vampires summoned in some wolves, which weren't particularly yeah. effective, so, but they did show up on the turn tracker. <laughs> this follows back to our idea of context. So we had a very long initiative tracker, right? But mm -hmm. the combat itself was exciting and everyone enjoyed it. So again, it's levers and dials, but that could easily turn in another table to a slog fest because of the initial. So it's these levers and dials, but always to the context of your table. Listen to the feedback from your table. So I throw that back down to like, what is a long combat for your group? I mean, really, I mean, the, the, your guys, like, I really have had some players that were truly some hack and slashers and just loved it. And I'm like, now you're fighting orcs. Now you're fighting bugbears. Now you're <laughs> fighting ogres. They're like, yeah! And we, are we going to get some trolls next? I'm like, maybe. We'll stay tuned. And they just, they would just love that. But some players, that have a fight's going on two, three hours. Even if the combat's running well, it's a lot. So, again, yeah, I would say that, that that's a kind of a room thing. Mm. There was no one answer for that. So did you feel like that fight was too long, Tony? The turns did take a hot minute to get around. So I'm yeah. like, yeah, I mean, you know, there was uh, that was really the centerpiece of that adventure. So it was. A, yeah, I mean, there was yeah. there was some stuff yeah. before it, but that sure. was the I mean, it was basically go save the town from an all out assault from. Strauss. Which is fair, too, because uh, we had not had a, one of our really big. Uh, knockdown drag out fights in several sessions. So, you know, you absolutely needed to have one of those because it's kind of a hallmark of our of our group in the Woodstock is we'll have these big <laughs> no, I'm saying it's 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 part of the campaign's structure is we'll have these big, big fights. So that's awesome. But like I'm saying, it's they're not mutually exclusive. You know, it is it was a long time individually between players, but as a whole, narratively, and what happened with it and how we got through is awesome, right? They're both true at the same time. So what I would recommend there, honestly, like if we're going to money more and quarterback this, <laughs> and, you, and you're going to be like, okay, so th this is a – your players have an opportunity to save a town, but it's an involved battle. You're going to have to punch your way through that. That is your – you're not going to go negotiate with them. You're not going to cast a magic spell to make the sun come down. It's going to be a pitched battle. Decide, are you going to do it or not? And we said we're going to do it. Looking back on that, I would have said, okay, these are all these monsters there. I would have broke them up into separate waves of battle. So not everything was out there all at once coming at specifically us because then the initiative order is long. Hmm. That's my only yeah. suggestion with that. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to figure out if that's... Now, I mean, there's a reason I didn't do that because I wanted to give you multiple types of threats you had to deal with at one time. Yeah. Exactly. And this is where we get into, I don't know... Yeah, because here's the thing. Like, there's certain things I could give you tips-wise out of that combat because I felt like that combat went well, and for the most part, the party really enjoyed it. And uh -huh. some players enjoyed it more than I think maybe than, than you did, Tony, who, who you know, you're a little more on the impatient side where you'd rather kind of have the sharper, faster combats because it gets it's more tactically complex to not wave them in. Like, it's yeah. more tactically complex to have, okay, you've got someone shooting you from over here. You've got vampire spawn in front of you here. You've got the vampire spellcasters over there, and you've got the guy with the – got the vampire with the, with the armor and sword right in your face. 
like having making the party deal with it all at once is a more tactically complex, and I would argue satisfying encounter for someone who likes a more tactical encounter, which some of the players do. But it is it does slow the turns down because not only do I have to move all the monsters, which I'm trying to do as fast as I can, the players have to figure out what are they going to do because they all have hard decisions to make. Do you do you try to take out this guy or do you go over there and try to go into the mist and find the guy who's shooting you for 2d12 plus four damage every turn? Do you try to find whoever just threw that fireball from the mist? And do you also run into the mist where you know there's vampiric mist hiding within the fucking mist? <laughs> yeah, and, that, and that's to me that and that this was a decision I had to make with this because I understand if I brought if I had brought them in different waves instead of different initiative orders, it would have been a faster moving combat. Which if you're not interested in the tactical side of it, or if you're more interested in speed than tactics, that's a better encounter for you. But I have players who are minis players. I have players who really seem to dig the challenge. So to to make a challenging tactical battle, it was a better choice to okay say, okay, we're going to have a lot of stuff in play. And it's going to be a little slower. People have a little more time to think. I don't know if I had a right choice to like, – I, I think you know I made a choice out of it, but I don't know if I had necessarily a right one because I think – you know like you said, Tony, your advice would be to, to split them up, and that would make it run faster, but it's not going to be as tactically interesting, which isn't – I think it's fair to say, Tony, you're not that interested in the tactical side of the combat though, right? Not particularly, but if you're concerned yeah. about CR – then you could have lowered the quantity of the monsters, still had a diverse amount, had still had diverse targets, but cranked their power. I wasn't I wasn't worried about the CR though. I wanted so the the equation one of part of the equation for if you want to make something tactically interesting is the more smaller things you put out, the more damage you put on the table that can be eliminated quickly. Yeah. So that's kind of the, that, that's one of the dials I'm adjusting there, which is, OK, I'm putting these, I think, four or five riflemen out there. The riflemen were all pretty weak. Vampires spawn to the party are pretty weak, although not super weak. They take they take these take you. some concentrated attacks to get that rid of That musket was not fucking weak. Oh, my God. No, but you could kill those guys easily. Yeah, so that's, that's, the, the, like, that's the balance. It's, it's, <laughs> Being yeah, such it, a complainer, takes a couple of bullets to the, the dragon's snout. He's like, oh, I'm bleeding my cold dragon blood. But no, the point being here is that this is exactly what we were – this is a perfect example. It's not about – there's no right decision. There's the decisions that you're making to yeah. the party that you're running. It's within the context. So again, these dials and levers that we've talked about this whole episode, you're actively adjusting. And – the end result was a very enjoyable encounter and a great session that I think everybody enjoyed to some level. Some enjoy it more, some enjoy it less. That's going to happen every session because you're going to have the role play heavy characters that are going to eat it up when we're doing the dinner with Count Ruffelgay, right? The vampire emissary, right? They're going to eat that up. They're not so. You're constantly adjusting these dials, but you're giving session to session, you are giving a complete meal, right? You're giving a little bit for everybody. So it's an enjoyable time, you know, and I think that's where you get because it was a great session. There are still things, as Tony said, you could Monday morning quarterback this stuff. So maybe some people will be able to take that and adjust their games if they're finding that, oh, well, my my group is kind of slogging through these things what are some of these things that that they did with woodstock that changed that you know so yeah. refresh my memory did we hit level 12 at the end of that game we did we did all right yeah. I'm, I'm paid off skies over level 11 man <laughs> We were level 11 for a whole session, and then we hopscotched right into it. It was awesome. I mean, part of the context here was, okay, so the game before that was literally all roleplay. 
You didn't have a single fight in that game. You did have some interesting role. You did have what I would count, call some role-playing encounters, though. So, like, there were yeah. some things you did that were – they were not fights, but you had skill – kind of – not exactly skill challenges, but sort of a skill challenge type of encounter. You had – you basically had to win the Duke over to, to back you guys instead of joining Strahd. And before that, you had to thwart the vampire plan in the town, which was basically they were introducing these little vampiric dolls, giving them away to all the kids, and those would have helped uh, – well, they would have done bad things to the town. So the party managed to hold a little their, – their own version of the Wiggles concert where the bard basically – played some kiddie music and got all the kids to come over and they traded candy for the dolls. And so that was something else the party did. Like the party did things in this all role play game, yeah. but they didn't fight anything before the set. Before that was the session. I think that was the session where the death claw got the, we got the sorcerer, right? Or was that two um, sessions? Before? That was probably, no, it was probably right about that session. I think. Yeah. So you kind of, that was a complicated combat. That was a go find your friend who was just abducted kind of thing. Those are kind of the the, the, the three no, things. No, three. we had actually two full almost role play sessions with the, the count. And then the day before when we kind of got into town and stuff like that, I think. So it had been a little bit since we had had a big knockdown. Well, so that's it, what I'm trying to good. remember. Because I think the dinner with the count, was that the same one where you guys had the... So that basically there was this in that castle was where you had the whole thing where you fought the larval mage. Yeah. Yeah. In the sewer there. Which had been basically your last big combat. So that was one or two sessions before it. And yeah. then you had some role playing. We had some role playing sessions. Then we had this big combat session. Uh, we ha It's been a little bit since you had a session where you just had a couple small combats. You know, I have it kind of yeah. just done kind of an on the road session in a little bit. We'll probably get back to that soon, though, I would imagine. So we are mixing it up. But it is. It just it strikes. It just talks to kind of. It is hard to balance these things effectively to have a game that everyone likes, right? And sometimes it is like you know, there's there's not a lot. There's sometimes you're making better choices for different players, and it can be hard to kind of balance in the middle for everybody and for yourself for the kind of combat you want to run. Yeah, but I think, and that's what I say. I will oftentimes say, you know, trust your DM because maybe not that session specifically for everybody, but over the course of the campaign, you're hitting every, you're giving everybody a big spotlight at some point to, to do the thing. Right. And that's really the, the big takeaway. Just you're constantly moving these levers and dials for your table in the context of your game. We're getting very deep into our games. I think, uh, yeah, I wonder how many listeners wish we had a live play they could listen to. <laughs> All right, guys, so we've gone on for a little bit here about how do we run our combat. So let's wrap up with some final thoughts. Uh, final thoughts, I would say, run your combat order tight. Know where all your characters are in terms of the board, what your monsters' abilities are, who they are, how they'd operate. Would they go after the wizard, or are they going to go lick a window? You need to know this going to the <laughs> combat. You don't want to make that determination in the field because you very easily could make a mistake because, you know, all eyes are you in that moment. And if you're going to have a large combat, uh, do your best to run it along smoothly. I don't advise rushing everybody, but just try to keep your end of it as the DM running as smoothly as possible. And with a big combat, there should be a big reward, honestly. If it's that epic talk and you've saved Helms Deep, okay, don't give him 74 copper pieces and tell him, say, thanks, you bother me, son. <laughs> um, I would say, uh, similarly to other things, I say play it for your session. Uh, so you know exactly where the players are and where they where they have the capability of going. So you can have those encounters, um, whether they're random or planned them or or specific encounters, have them out. Know what is where, where these things are, and what they do. 
if you're dealing with spell casters versus melee, do that little bit of prep with your prep for that session. Know what they're going to do so you can run that because part of running combat is running it, like Tony said, tight. So you got to keep that that flow moving. There are times for everyone to have so, a little bit of time to decide what they're going to do and all that, but you need to keep it running. Um, know the intelligence of your monsters so you know what they're going to do. Who are they going to attack? Why would they attack that person? Do they even know that these are people? Is it just food? Whatever. Well, are they going to retreat? Whatever it is, not everyone's going to fight to the death. And there's nothing wrong with massive, large combats, but like Thorin did, and uh, you know, I had done it with Yestra Hill, uh, and Tony did with some of Storm Kings, make there be multiple things that the, or they're having to deal with. The terrain, the environment, different factions of villains, all of that kind of stuff to create more than just, you punch, I punch, you punch, I punch. If it's just a slugfest, kill the monster quicker. <laughs> All right. And for me, for Final Fantasy, I'm mad. This is a big topic because you spend so much of your time in the game running combat. Like we didn't talk too much about about terrain or about when your monsters should run away. Uh, to, to, to put a point on that, I will say that battle we talked about uh, that happened with the Woodstock Wanderers with all the, the vampires and gunmen and stuff. Yeah. In the end, two of the vampires did run away rather than fight to the bitter. <laughs> so... Perfect uh, so, so we didn't touch on this, but I would say there's nothing wrong. In fact, it's encouraged if the if if you've gone on for a bit and the bad guys are taking a beating, have some of them run away. Yeah, you can end the combat quicker that way. Uh, you can have them surrender too. Although then you got kind of like the next fight, the next the next scene of okay, what does the party do with the surrender combatant, which can be a lot of fun, but can also be a little bit you know chaotic as you you find out that you're supposedly chaotic. Good party members want to do some some torturing <laughs> to, to get what they want, and how do you gonna you know how are you gonna handle that? That's a whole alignment discussion. Yeah, you know, I gotta I gotta reinforce what Dave and Tony both said, which is it's really important to know the monsters you're playing and to do what you can to minimize the time you're spending on the monster turns because you're running more characters than everyone else and you've got to run them as quickly as you can. So even if you're introducing a lot of monsters, try to make them go as fast as you can. Try to minimize the slog you add to the battle. With players, uh, you you know, let them enjoy it. Let them make the tactical decisions they, they want to make. But I do think there's a point we can kind of start pushing a little bit to, hey, speed up a little bit, please. You know, maybe you can you can also kind of just kind of make this, you know, you can start dropping hints that you want things moving faster to try to move players along a little faster. It is one of the tricky things is balancing, you know, as we've talked about more impatient players with players that need a little more time with what they're doing. And it's one of the tricky things about being a DM, because that's one of those un, uh, one of those things that isn't quantifiable, that you have players who want different things out of the game. Some players want to want want to get deeper into the tactics. Other players want to move as quickly as possible. And that is tricky to balance. So, you know, you just got to work on that and find that balance within your group. And make sure everyone's having a good time. And at the end of the day, that's really the most important point. Make sure everyone's having a good time. Do your best to, to give them the encounters they want to have, to surprise them to 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 make sure that you know they enjoy it that it's always interesting it doesn't get boring probably the most dangerous thing about running DD combat is if you're not careful it gets boring so don't let it get boring keep it exciting keep it changing up but also don't let it slog out all right guys that's it thank you very much thanks for uh for stopping by to, to discuss this with me I had a good time good stuff, good stuff.
Thank you all for listening to another episode of Three Wise DMs. This particular episode was not based on a uh, on, on a listener feedback, but we often take listener questions. So if you have anything you'd like to hear us cover, please send it to us at threewisedms at gmail.com or go to our website, threewisedms.com and leave it in the what's your problem field because we love helping you with your problems. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're all very active there. And if you like what you're listening to, please hit that five-star rating button in your podcast platform, leave us a review, tell your friends. We really appreciate the support and the way it's helped us grow. That's it for this week. We'll see you next time on Three Wise DMs. Thank you.